Hello, everybody. This is Chris Holton Jablonski, and I am so excited to be welcoming everybody back to our next season, our third season of the Samwise Yaboinski podcast. Very good, Chris. It's very good to see you and to hear you. How are you? I'm good. I'm good. I'm excited. I'm excited for this season. I'm excited for so many incredible guests and building on this wonderful work that you've done. Listeners, I do a little bit of these conversations, but really Sam is the one who picks it up in uh, in football, especially for our guests today, a little sports reference. There's something called yards after carry. That's when you get the ball to somebody and then they basically keep going all the way down the field. And I, that's what happens with these podcasts is we have these sweet little moments and then Sam brings it all the way down the field. Yeah, into yeah, the yeah, end zone. Yeah. So thank you for all you've done sure. and all you're about to do with the whole brand new season or two, two new seasons coming mm-hmm. this year. So this is really exciting. And today, especially um, because we have a very special guest. It's been really fun to have some of the staff on as guests and get to know them a little bit better. And we have our brand new, freshest staff member, uh, John O'Connor. Our intern is joining us today. So hi, welcome, John. Welcome, John. Well, thank you for having me here on your podcast. So John came up out of the same church that I did in Arlington Street Church. And so we we share a a mentor and a friend and Kim Crawford Harvey, who's who was um, a big part of both of our paths, which is very sweet. Um, but even just in the short span of time, I mean, I think it's been what a month, maybe not quite. Oh, yeah, almost a day, a it day less than a month, 9/11. which is amazing. It's been such a joy to have you on the team, such a joy to have you diving in and leading worship and collaborating in so many different ways. So so welcome to the pod. And we thought it would be fun to just kind of hear a little bit about your story, hear how you came first, how you found, you know, Unitarian Universalism, and then how you end up here with us. So so yeah, what's what's um what's a little bit of your backstory? Well, it, it's kind of funny that I should be a member of any church, given my background. Um, I was actually raised uh, Roman Catholic, but I spent my first two years of school, that would be daycare and kindergarten, at a Jewish school, uh, which had the benefit of JCC, which was the Jewish Community Center summer camp. So my mother thought it was a huge bonus because she could have the kids busy 12 months out of the year. So that was my first experience with any sort of organized religion. Um, But I transferred over into a Catholic school system um, for uh, first grade. And, And I can still remember my first day of class there. 
I was brought up before the entire class by Sister Irene. And she introduced me to the class and she said, class, I'd like everyone to meet John O'Connor. He spent the last two years at the Jewish school. John, I'd like you to tell everyone what you learned about our blessed savior. And I looked at her and I simply said, you mean Moses? <laughs> you can stand in the back of the room in the coat closet with your face to the wall until you come up with a better answer than that. Wow. And so I spent the day in the coat closet and came home and told my parents that I definitely wanted to go back to the Jewish school, but wow. that was not in my future. Um, and my relationship to Catholicism was troubled throughout 10 years of Catholic education. And when I graduated from high school, I thought my days of any form of organized religion were simply over. I couldn't imagine why I would feel a calling to seek out a different religious community. Um, and so I went on. I went on through law school and never gave it a second thought. But then I found myself in the late 1980s. And at that time, we were in the height of the AIDS crisis. And people were just dropping like flies. And I found myself in the need of community and searching. And I remember, you know, going to a memorial service or two at Arlington Street Church thinking, oh, this, this seems like a pretty good place. And I did some research on the Unitarians and I went to a few services and I wasn't offended which I thought was a great starting point given from where I'd come. And 30 something years later, I'm still here, which, mm. which is amazing. It's It's been a great journey for me, most of which has been at Arlington Street Church right in Boston on the garden. Um, and I have an inquiring mind. And I remember saying to... Um, Reverend Kim, probably, oh, say five years ago, do you think it would be crazy if I went to divinity school? Wow. And I think she said something like, well, I've been waiting for you to ask me that question. I think you should, you know, why don't you take a class? And, and I thought to myself, well, that seems like a reasonable thing to do, because at that time I was I was close to 55 years old and I was thinking to myself, why are you going to go back to grad school? I mean, mm. you're 55 years old. You already have a successful career. You're mm. going to spend three or four years in school paying tuition for a field that's not going to pay you nearly <laughs> what it's costing you in tuition. So it's like, it's, makes zero sense yeah so it kind of seemed like the right thing to do so i took a couple classes at hds and um, then decided to apply they decided to admit me i decided to go and one thing has led to another and now i find myself here with you at first church in belmont I love the way you say that. So I, th I think it's worth sort of digging in. So what was it? How did you sort of first think of ministry? And then what made you say yes? Because you're right, on some level, it doesn't make sense. But and I and I will sneak in, 
my own father, I don't even know if I've told you this. So my own father was ordained at 62. So he was a biology professor at BU for 28 years. And then for the last four years of his time there, he also went to the theology school while he was teaching at BU. He went to school there and then, you know, graduated, got a, got another degree. And anyway, so started serving churches uh, at 62, which is great. But wow. But so what was it that you, how did the, how did the sort of idea come and then, and what made you say yes, even though? It... Well, I'll answer the question in the, in the general and then the particular. So in general, I am a huge fan of people reinventing themselves, of reimagining mm. themselves into a different future. This is my third career. It's not that I've left any of my careers behind me, that of a lawyer, that is of a realtor. I do those things every day. I carry them with me every day. They serve me well every day. And there's more that I can do with my life. And I felt that calling to do something more. And so it takes a certain amount of courage and stick to to say, okay, I'm going to take this leap. And I'm going to go back into grad school and I'm going to do this. And you sort of take that great big breath and you like jump off the cliff and off you go. And guess what? It's really exciting. So that's the general answer. In particular, what led me into the exploration of ministry was realization probably, I'm going to say 10 years ago, I was just going along with my life had a good marriage, still do, had a good career, still do. And I was aware that I wasn't sensing a lot of joy in my life. It mm. seemed like something was missing. And mm. from the outside, it was like, oh, this is this is all going well. It's like nice career, nice marriage, nice house, good friends. Where's the joy? Where's the excitement for life? Where is the drive to move forward to the other thing? And it wasn't there. I was sort of stuck in just sort of doing the same thing. And I came to realize that I didn't have an understanding of empathy and compassion. And I realized that I was disconnected from other people. Um, as a lawyer and a realtor, people would come to me with a specific problem and I would consult with them. I'd give them my best advice as to how I thought they could move forward. And if they did it and they came back to me and they had feedback about how it worked, that was great. If they didn't do anything and they came back and they were complaining about the same thing in six months, I'd be like, oh, what do you want me to do? You haven't done anything. Like, <laughs> I've already said everything I've got to say, you know, go fly a kite. And that's not a great answer. And I realized that what I was lacking was sort of that empathy and compassion. Yes, I could problem solve, but I wasn't really feeling where people were on a holistic way. I was simply like transactional, solving problems. Um, and that's a great skill set to have. So I set off on this sort of quest to understand what empathy and compassion were. 
And I was vaguely aware of the words, um, but I was kind of horrified when I started spending some time with it. And I'm looking at it, empathy. It's like, why would I want to feel other people's pain? That's just mm. awful. You know, it's like, <laughs> I've got enough going on in my life without like soaking up other people's pain like some sort of a sponge. So I was wrestling with this kind of on an academic level, like, well, what is empathy? What is compassion? How do they work together? And in sort of an example of be careful of what you ask for, you just might get it. Life provided me with an opportunity to face empathy and compassion straight head on, like a runaway freight train. And that happened about eight and a half years ago, when all of a sudden I realized that in my tightly little controlled world, where I had built up boundaries all around me so that I could live my life without interference, someone had managed to scale over those walls without me really noticing it. And then there were, he, that person was in my life as a friend. And as the friendship developed and truths were shared, it turned out he was a heroin addict. And things went from bad to worse to downright hellish. And I found myself on that road of all of a sudden, even though I don't have kids, of lying awake in the middle of the night, worried about what was happening to someone else, feeling their pain, even though it wasn't mine, and feeling myself compelled to move into action, compassion. And so began a journey of understanding in praxis, in real life, what it means to work in empathy and in compassion. And so in exploring that, I became more interested in what was going on with other people and less about what was going on with me, mm. so, <laughs> which is an interesting move to make, um, yeah. especially for someone who was so used to being the star of his own movie. And that would be me, you know, so. It's been a real journey of getting the focus off myself, becoming less, less self-centered and yeah. more concerned about what I might be able to do that's of benefit to other people. Because I feel that I have been gifted much in life and taken it for granted. And I'm now at that point where I have to look at all of that and say, what's the point of it? Mm. I can't take any of this with me. What can I teach other people? How can I be of service to other people? How can I make a difference? And yeah. so that was sort of the mindset that led me down the path to exploring going to divinity school, going into ministry. And that's why we're having this conversation today. That's fantastic. Yeah, it's fascinating. So having been, having grown up Catholic and having that initial experience with, with Christianity, 
And what was it like coming back into church? What was it like coming back into uh, religious community? And have you have you re-encountered that sort of one of our sources? Or was it was it odd at first? Or how was it? At first, I had not, as I said, I, w- I was familiar on a rudimentary way with Judaism and intimately familiar with Catholicism and, and as an organization, as a structure, how it works. That I got. I had no real understanding of, of how Unitarian Universalism was structured, how it worked, what the processes involved were. I mean, having been raised Catholic, I was just used to that top-down hierarchy where mm. everything just flowed downhill. And by everything, I mean everything flowed downhill. Mm. Um, so for me, I was, for the first quite a while, I, I kept a distance from yeah. anything that involved governance or committees. I yeah. would come to services, <laughs> I would enjoy them, and yeah. it would be like, okay, this is pretty good. And now I'm just going to step back and I'm going to go back to my life and I'll see you all next week. I don't know what to do during the week. I don't particularly want to know. You put on a pretty good show and I'll see you next week. So it went on that way for a while. Yeah. What uh, what, What was the first sort of dipping a toe into something deeper? Um, I think it was like, being on the greeting committee, you know, meeting people at the front door and Mm. handing out the orders of service. And then one thing led to another. And then all of a sudden, 14 years went by and I was still the chair of the worship committee. (laughs) How did that happen? And then it was like, Oh, we've got student ministers. We have interns. How cool is that? And so I was on the intern minister committee for several people. And I thought, yeah, this is really interesting. And so the more I learned about it, the more I thought, oh, there could be a role for me in this. I need not just be a passive attendee at services. I actually have something to contribute and that contribution would be welcomed. Those questions would be welcomed. That exploration would be welcomed. That's great. So, so I'm, uh, I'm curious, John, how do you, um, well, where are you theologically? So with your Catholic background, do you feel like the uh, the 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 Catholic doctrines that you were raised with have you have you pushed those away or or uh, what what do you retain of of that of that tradition theologically and uh, metaphysically? Hmm. Maybe I'll answer it on a more basic level. Yeah, I'm still um, I'm respectful of of Catholicism. Um, I was profoundly influenced by some of the nuns that we had as teachers. Mm. And some of those nuns, the sisters of the presentation of the Blessed Virgin Mary, thank you very much. Best name ever. Mm. That's awesome. (laughs) Awesome. Awesome name. Some of those nuns were the same nuns that my parents had. 
I, I had them wow. when they were in their 70s. And some of them were brilliant educators, absolutely brilliant, and could control a class of 45 or 50 kids. And it's just like how they did that decade after decade is kind of a miracle. And so hmm. I have a lot of respect for the type of faith it takes to lead that life of service. And I still have a lot of curiosity about the early church and, you know, reading about it and where it started and the history of it, you know, what happened when Christianity was empowered and became an official religion of empire and converted into empire herself. And so I, from an, academic historical i'm i'm still fascinated you know by the early church um and and it's a lot of its teachings i find very interesting where i get lost with it all the resurrection and the virgin births and the miracles and it's like i don't feel like i need that in my life and so I don't feel compelled to to attend those services. Um, it doesn't speak to me theologically. Um, and so I've chosen a different path. Mm. How would you characterize your own path then? My own path is really simple. If I were to break it really down small, I'd say Unitarian. There's only one God. And I look at different religions as foreign languages. And languages are just humankind's attempt regarding spiritual to speak to that which is impossible to speak to. And so for me, there's only one God with many different languages or religions trying to enter into a dialogue with it, to have an understanding, to have a growth process with it. So that's sort of where I am as Unitarian. Universalist would be, don't worry, no one's going to get left behind, no one's going to hell. So chill out. (laughs) (laughs) Stay present in the moment. Yeah. And the stay present in the moment is kind of informed by Buddhism, of being present, of experiencing what's absolutely happening here and now without obsessing about what happened in the past, without falling into the pit of anxiety, worrying about what's going to happen in the future. Just stay in the present make the best decisions with the information you have at hand, learn from any missteps you make, and make the next best decision you can. Mm. Wow. That's great. That really resonates with me. I especially, I especially uh, resonate with your, your metaphor of different religions as being like different languages. Mm-hmm. And of course, the thing about languages is that you, in, at least in principle, you can translate anything into another language just if you have enough ingenuity and you have a deep enough understanding of both languages in question, you can translate them. So I like I like I like I like that idea of what it suggests of the various diverse ways in which we try to interpret 
our, our, our reality and try to make sense of it and create meaning. But at the same time, there can be something underneath which is single and unitary and something there to be found underneath. Yeah, I, I, I love languages. I love um, translating. And, and translation itself is an act of interpretation. It's like, what word are you going to use when you have two or three possibilities? And they each have a different and distinct meaning and theological implications. I have the benefit of knowing your final project. And so it's fun that you touch on the translation. So I wonder if you could say a little bit about that project. And in particular, if in the course of that project, there was anything that was particularly surprising or illuminating as you did it. But first, say a little bit about what it was. Sure. So I remember in Karen King's introduction to the New Testament class. Now, as a good Catholic boy, I never read the Bible because it wasn't required reading. We were just supposed to do what we were told. We weren't necessarily expected to ever read the Bible. So I remember it was towards the end of that semester and we got to the last book and it was the book of Revelation. And I'm like, I'm not so sure about this one. I think this is the apocalypse um, end of the world. So I started reading through it. I was exhausted. And I'm like, what are the dragons and eating babies and fire and brimstone and eternal damnation. I'm like, oh my God, this is where all this stuff comes from. And I just kind of threw it down on the table and said, I'm not going to bother reading this one. Hopefully it won't show up on the final exam. I'm done with it. (laughs) (laughs) I I have never heard, you know, revelation preached from any Unitarian pulpit. I'm not going to worry about this one in the future. That's funny. And I thought, okay, This is in my past. I'm never going to pay any attention to the book of Revelation again. And then I was taking a class with Catherine Breckest, and it was called City on a Hill. And it was the story or the history of religion in America and the United States and its formation. And it talked a lot about millennialism and the influence that the book of Revelation had on the Puritans and the pilgrims who came over to New England. And they really envisioned themselves as, you know, creating the new Jerusalem. And I thought, oh, the book of Revelation, that same book has to do with the foundation of like New England. And then horror upon horrors, the Trump administration decided that it was going to move its embassy from Tel Aviv to Jerusalem. And there was a series of, of, of articles written about how this move was really in furtherance, hastening Armageddon, the second coming of Jesus, because certain evangelicals and fundamentalists, such as Mike Pence and uh, Mike Pompeo, the Secretary of State, had these firm beliefs, these interpretations of the book of Revelation, that in order for Jesus to come a second time, that the Jews had to be in control of the historical kingdoms of Israel. And I was like, what? This is crazy. What are we talking about here? So Mm -hmm. I thought, all right, I clearly have to like do a deep dive into this book and figure out what it is. So I decided I would read it in Greek and do my own translation and take class in it. So that's what I did. And it led me down the rabbit hole. 
So it ended up turning into a book, which is on the left is the Greek, on the right is my translation, did an introduction, did footnotes, commentary, and, and study questions for it. And in reading that book, I had to like push back against the predominant hermeneutic or lens that the book of Revelation is commonly viewed through in America, which is this premillennial dispensational view, meaning that they're going to use biblical interpretation. They're going to look at current events and figure out who's playing what role in the book of Revelation to figure out who's saved, who's going to hell, and when it's all going to happen. And that's how this book of Revelation has been used for centuries, for centuries. Mm. And I wanted to find a way to push back against that to see if there was something other that we could come to understand from this book. And what I took away from it was that it is a call, an opportunity to look at humankind's activities, their decisions, their actions, and see if there is a chance to repent and repent, metanoeo, to turn, to come, to learn from afterwards and then to make a change. And as it turns out in this book, there's all these cycles of sevens, of seven bowls and seven trumpets and all these plagues that just keep happening. And right before the seventh plague happens, like the right after the sixth day in Genesis, there's a pause and there's a rest and there's an opportunity. And the question is, does humankind repent or do they not? And inevitably in Revelation, they do not. And the next cycle starts all over again. And so for me, it's an opportunity to look at myself, what I'm doing with my life and what our society is doing in its current time and say, huh, where are we? What can we do differently? Instead of just looking at it as some sort of secret to understanding when the world is going to come to an end. So that's how I have worked with this text to to come to appreciate some of its beauty. I want to read your book. That's fascinating. And I think we you were going to do a, a program on it in a little while, right? We we're going to Yeah. We're about so that, I mean, so. It, it was a great collaborative effort. So I have a a client friend who's a book designer, so I thought, well, how good is that? We'll bring Allison in on it. And then we worked with an artist who does um video games and um Dungeons and Dragon type movies. Oh wow. So we did we picked out seven scenes that we wanted to do original illustrations from the book. And they're they're sort of like sci-fi, they're very spooky, scary, and um incorporate that into the book along with images that sometimes harmonize and sometimes offer a counterpoint to what's going on in the text. So it sort of reads as a cross between an illuminated Bible and a graphic novel and a commentary, like all mixed up together. And um, yeah, he was so happy with the way the images turned out that he's made video clips from them because he does 3D digital monitoring with them. And there's one with the giant angel with the sickle just like carving through the earth. And it's like, ooh, okay, that's kind of nice. 
Yeah. Wow. This is so awesome. I want to see this. <laughs> I know. It's very exciting. Wow. Well, so this is just one part of why we're so excited to have you on the team for the coming year. Um, one of the things that we've had in lots of these podcasts is time. If you have a question for either Sam, Yule, or myself. Um, so I don't know, do you have a question for either of us? Oh yeah. I think as I think about questions, I think about, you know, challenges like in my role as an intern minister, I'm trying to figure out all the different areas that I could contribute in. And there's so much going on here at the church. Um, it's it's amazing, given where I came from at Arlington Street Church, where we have so few families, that we're doing a church musical, The Sound of Music, and there's 64 children in the cast. It's I know, like, right? oh, it's like 64 children. I don't think in 10 years we had 64 children at Arlington Street Church. So it's yeah. like there's so much going on. There's so much richness in this community that uh, for the first month, I've just been trying to figure out what's going on here and, and where might my role be? So I'm thinking I definitely would love to like teach a little course on, you know, the revelation. That would be fun. Um, I'm interested in the uh, families from Afghanistan that we're working mm. with, with immigration and what it means to work with families. I think that's really on point and something I want to explore further. So, uh, you know, I'm excited to be here. It's fun just to, to see uh, different styles of worship services that we have here. Um, it's so funny. I, when I was at HDS, I was with some students who have been Unitarian their entire life, UU. And so they've been through the children's RE and young adult programs they know more about Unitarian Universalism in their little pinky than I do in my whole body. Because <laughs> my experience with Unitarian Universalism is predominantly in one church. I've seen it done one way. I've gone to you know Harvard Divinity School, which is in many ways very close to Arlington Street Church, and that's where Kim went. So it's fun to be here in Belmont and see a different style of worship with um, different makeup in the community as far as kids and ages and numbers. So it's all new. It's all exciting. And I'm looking forward to finding my place in this rich tapestry. And one of the fun things about where we are, too, especially this year, is, you know, when even the Vesper service, which was new last year, that this year we're doing four different kinds of vespers services so it's been it's been really you know fun to get to know you fun to have you on the team and it's been fascinating to be explaining all that we're doing <laughs> to you and realizing like ooh i got to pace pace myself and pace you because there's just so much going on and so many things are so different and so one of the cool things about vespers this year is we have four different kinds we have the normal vespers like we did last year and then a musical Vespers that has this big, long music portion, which you'll be working with, too, because um, for those of you 
who don't know yet, um, John is also a pianist. And so is a couple things working, um, some pieces working on to share in that. And then also a chanting Vespers and then also a meditation Vespers. So we're going to have all these new things. And, you know, one of the great gifts, I think, of Samuel and the whole rest of the staff team is we're all really creative and ready to try something out. You know, like um, these teas and these gatherings that Samuel's hosting this year, you know, it's like we just keep trying. I mean, we're clear on the mission. We're clear on the purpose and what we're doing. And we know that there's hundreds of ways we could get there. And so we'll just try something out and see what see what sticks. Were you trying to say something before, Sam? Oh, yeah. I was just... When John, you mentioned earlier um, challenges and and a challenge that I sometimes come back to and think about is that um, a a minority of our first church members were raised Unitarian Universalist. Um, the majority are transplants from other faith backgrounds um, or from no faith no faith background, as in my case. Um, and so, and it, and it and it creates a. I think this is maybe quite unique to Unitarian Universalism as a as a as a religion. In that, um, you know, people can have quite complicated relationships to religion as such, but they're in a religion. They've chosen to 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 join one and 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 covenant with a with a with a spiritual community, but but for them, uh, religious ideas and religious teaching can be problematic and and so and so it can be hard to figure out what is the right approach to teaching and presenting and sort of and sort of transmitting our own unitarian heritage and our own universalist heritage and and i feel like the one of the challenges that we face is that there's actually a, quite a lot of hunger um particularly among the people who are um transplants from other faith backgrounds who have maybe turned away from faith backgrounds faith backgrounds that were too dogmatic or too intolerant they 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 they're yearning for some content something positive some some positive not a creed of course necessarily but they 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 want to know about what it is that this faith tradition that they're now in has to teach and um and and um one of the challenges is how to is how to create um those kinds of those kinds of events, those kinds of programs, those kinds of discussion environments, in which people are coming theologically from very, very diverse, often conflicting backgrounds, but there is this kind of hunger to to understand and deepen and to think together. Um, so I'm looking forward over the next year, and just it's a sort of a long term thing, really. It's a sort of perennial thing, I think, in our faith tradition. But figuring out ways to meet meet that need that that need to grapple with difficult ideas and with with truth and with faith and with commitment and so on. Yeah, it's a really, it's a conundrum. And and I think we have to like provide people with the space, like the vessel that they can sort of put themselves in and have these comments, have these explorations, and then give them plenty of time in which to do it. Yeah. Um, and that's, it's it's like a delicate balance of of trying to figure out gee, you know, what sort of programs do we offer? How mm. do we invite people into those programs? And then how do we let them know that there's there's no right answer? There's no quiz at the end of class. It's, it's, it's a process. It's a journey. It's an engagement. It's an exploration that really never ends. 
And it's like, yeah, how do totally. we invite people into that unknown where the, where the finish line is just, it's always someplace else. It's always moving yeah. ahead of us. Yeah, yeah, yeah. Yeah, I totally hear you. But at the same time, so for, so another part for me, another another part of the challenge, though, is that I've heard, and I don't know if this will resonate with some of our listeners, but I've heard from some lifelong Unitarian Universalists in this congregation um, that this emphasis on there is no one path, there is no one endpoint, there is no one truth, there is no one spiritual journey, and so forth. Um, is is that that kind of messaging particularly resonates with people who are coming from different faith backgrounds? But if you're coming from this one, it can it can it can be a little frustrating because it's like, no, we're a positive faith tradition. We have our own tradition. We have our own beliefs. We have things that we we that we believe and that we commit to. It's not just you know uh, pick your own story kind of thing. Right. You know what or, I mean. And the yeah. lack. So I think the interesting thing in what I hear is you saying, Samuel, is is there's a way that Unitarian Universalism can be defined as a lack of things, like we're non-credal, right? And so, yeah, but without it. articulating yeah. the richness of the path that we do provide. Exactly, know? yeah. And right. actually, my son, Jack, my 12-year-old, we have this uh, seventh and eighth graders are doing this neighboring face curriculum or, um, where they are exploring other religions and and but they also talk about unitarian universalism jack was there and and nate was telling me that one of the things that they ended up talking about was you know the path of unitarian universalism and he asked jack to explain a little bit about both the unitarian and the universalist church and he was like i think the quote was i don't really care about this but and then he just proceeded to totally explain the merger and the oh, two different awesome. things. And just like, <laughs> you know, it's not something we sat everybody down. We said, Hey, here's the stuff. But, um, um, but he's, he's, he's gotten it. And I think that that articulation of, you know, that we're grounded in, in this world, that we're engaged in the world around us, that we understand our purpose being tied up in, you know, this political reality in, in these, in empathy and compassion, like we were talking about, and that we're on this path of growth that's unique to ourselves and, and that we can come together with all of those different theologies that we can come together with all of these different paths and join in serving the world and join in, you know, reaching out to people who are suffering and join in, you know, working hard to build this, this beloved community and i think that's articulating it in a positive clear way so that there's something to invite people into you know is um is super important yeah i mean if we look at sort of the the seven principles it's like right those are sort of like fundamental truths and then to sort of explore what those truths are and how they have manifested in different cultures in different languages over different times is an invitation for people to reach back to things that they've experienced in their own formation and, and, and say, oh, I kind of get it in this language. Or, wow, I'm I'm looking at Buddhism right now, and I never understood this concept when it was presented to me in Christian terms. And it's like you sort of like look at things in different in a different light or from a different side. And it's like, oh, I get it. This makes sense. 
and it becomes part of us and something that we can build on. And that's the exciting thing about Unitarian Universalism is the different traditions that we feel comfortable drawing from in our own explorations. Yeah. Yeah. And I love that. And and I think the the other piece of it and kind of coming all the way back to your sort of realization at the age of 55 in this new path of of ministry is, you know, it's never ending, right? So I was just talking with a couple who's just starting, um, they just got engaged. And so we're going to be helping them with their wedding and stuff. And I was telling them that part of the reason we do the premarital counseling is the, is the couple they are now, like with my own, you know, beloved, we are totally fundamentally different people than we were 15 years ago. When we said yes to being married 15 years ago, it was just a different thing. And so I think the same thing with our spiritual paths you know, the moment that I was first on a cushion meditating in Shelburne Falls with the Vipassana folks when I was 19 years old, after coming back from working for a sculptor, that dude on that cushion is a very different person wow. than this morning at 5.45 before waking my kids up to make them lunch at my cushion downstairs <laughs> to make them breakfast. <laughs> You know, and so the spiritual path sort of evolves and opens and it's this dynamic. And so I think that's, to me, one of the most beautiful things about this thing that we're creating together Mm -hmm. is that Mm -hmm. it's responsive and it's connected to all of the rest of our lives and that it changes. And so if we're doing it right, you know, especially all of the different life moments that come, you know, we're in a different place and we grow and we deepen and we keep coming back and we find out what is unfolding and what's opening. And anyway, wonderful, wonderful beginning. Folks will, we, we have John for another eight months. So eight reach out. Months. He's, he's around. Um, he's available to meet. Uh, we'll, he's going to be in worship. He's going to be doing all sorts of programs. Um, and the nice thing about, you know, starting again as a teaching congregation is also that he's connected us with a bunch of other students. And so we'll continue this part of who we are. First Church is is in a really special place right now, and it's really important and really good that we keep helping this new generation of ministers learn and shape, and it's it's a really beautiful piece of, of what we can do to help both individual folks and connect with colleagues like you, John, but also how to help Unitarian Universalism off into the future. Because I got some fishing to do in like 20 years and somebody's going to have to come in. Anyway, wonderful to see you guys. Thank you so much. Thank you, Samuel, as always. Thank you, John. Thank you, John. Thank you, Chris. All right, thank you. And we'll see you both in church. All right. See you all in church.